are listening to the American Truth Project Podcast. I'm Barry Nussbaum. We're up on a kibbutz at the Syrian border, about to have a tour that you will not believe. I'm up on the Golan Heights, about a mile from the Syrian border, in front of the British base and turning to destroyed in 1744. The Syrians come over that border that I'm looking at. My left is a minefield with barbed wire. On top of that hillside behind me is a special that is the first line of defense. Standing down the hill from where we were, looking down into a, about a 30-foot ditch that's to prevent tank crossings, we are literally on the Syrian border. That building right there is occupied and manned right now by various rebel forces. I'm literally 300 yards from them. That is the barrier between Israel and Syria. And it's not safe to stay here very long. Just inside the border, are the crops, the border is On the Golan, this is an anti-tank ditch, just about a mile and a half from the border that's intended to be a trap for Syrian tanks should they close the border. This was the Syrian army base where the officers and their families lived, which is now part of the land of Ilan's kibbutz conquered by Israel in 1967. I'm standing in front of the former head of the Syrian Army Command for the Golan Heights, which was captured in 1967 when Israel defeated the Syrian Army here on the Golan during the Six-Day War. In that upper office right behind on that white wall, they found a map that labeled all the cities in northern Israel with a new Syrian name because the intention was in the Six-Day War to conquer all of northern Israel and rename it as part of Greater Syria. And it's been part of Israel since 1967. The road that we're driving on has minefields on both sides. Obviously, the road has been cleared. Some mines here are active Israeli mines. Syrian mines from 50 years ago that are mostly inactive. The Israeli mines are anti-tank mines that are triggered by pressure, by weight, and vibration. We have just finished an amazing tour along the Syrian border. This is our tour guide, Ilan Shulman. Ilan, tell us about the kibbutz where we're standing that literally sits on the Syrian border. Why are you here with your family? Besides the fact that it's the best kibbutz we have in Israel. Uh, first of all, it's a nice environment to live in. And then after that, uh, 
one of the reasons it's living uh, close to the border for with Syria. And it's not a matter of living in risk or under danger because it was one of the quietest border we had in Israel. But now gradually in the past few years since the civil war in Syria began, it's important and significant more than ever uh, to settle this land and to live on. Once we see the different radical groups there on the other side, uh, here from the kibbutz, we can hear them fight. Um, so the idea is to stay here in the Golan and to uh, consider this area as part of Israel. How would you feel about the Golan ever going back to Syria as part of a peace deal? Uh, so, of course, as most of the people here in the Golan, uh, I was objected. Uh, it's something that was on the table. And every time before you're taking a mortgage or you're starting to build a house or you invest more in the houses here in the Golan, people fought twice, especially after the evacuation from Gush Katif by Gaza. Um, so now we're uh, pretty glad uh, that uh, it's not a situation anymore. Which means that as a result of the civil war in Syria, and it's not that we're happy for that war, but as a result of this question about exchanging the Golan, got off the table. This is not something that people talk with, talk about, or uh, or think about on a daily basis. Gradually, we started to see in the past few years that there are more and more Israelis moving to this area. We're talking about more than 4,000 in the past five years, which is a lot for such a small region with 20,000 Jewish people living in. So in terms of what you do as a tour guide, when you're not serving in the IDF or on the front lines, how could someone contact you? What's your website? So they can find you for your guide services, which I highly recommend. So uh, first, the easiest, it's by Googling uh, No Other Land. And that's the name of my uh, company. Uh, I have a website of uh, golanland.com. Uh, um, um, or Elon Schulman in Marom Golan. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Elon. It's been a wonderful day with you. We're leaving the area on the border. That's former Syrian army frontline outpost in the Golan. There's another building there. This is now Israeli military. This is the road that we just came down with the minefields on both sides. Active mines on both sides. We're sitting on Which rebels 
this case, we're talking about a coalition that holds the Jubil Muhammad, the army of Muhammad, uh, of seven different organizations. One of the organizations that considered the most significant in that coalition called themselves Fiat Tahrir Asham, Fiat Front, Tahrir Liberation, Sham, Big Syria, uh, or you can call them Al Qaeda. It's a group affiliated with Al Qaeda. So, right, what we're looking at is a village on the border with Israel. That is controlled, managed, and governed independently of the Syrian government, run by Al Qaeda. So we have, yeah, we have the village that run by Al Qaeda, and we have that city behind that, controlled by the regime. Uh, literally, uh, half a mile apart. Yeah, maybe less. Where, so we're, you know, where we're sitting, sometimes there's a light fire. Um, yeah. Much one clear day during the First World War, the 16th of May, 1916. The pre 
strikes the French because they started taking out the Middle East to the pencil and the rule and start to draw a straight line, decomposed the big Islamic state internationals, created artificial states as Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and the British said and expected that with the passage of time that people that live in the state of Iraq will teach them to be Iraqi. Which means completely forgot or ignored from the prime model identity. people that killed in Syria, almost getting to 6 million refugees and almost 10 million displaced. This is still not the end. But let's say 7 years ago, before the civil war began, Syria was a country of 22.5 million people. A third of the population, 42% labor in poverty line, 20% unemployed, and almost half of the population under the age of 19 years old. It means the population there doubled in the past 30 years. They needed water resources. They got the water by the Euphrates, which then by the Turks, the Arantes, they dried because of wrong use of water, and farmers left without water. And a farm without having water cannot work as a farmer, so gradually they started to do urbanization since 05, moved from the villages to the cities, looking for jobs, which most of them didn't manage to find. Four and a half million people, 20% of the population, living in tents or temporary housing surrounding the cities. And you got a very good reason for an uprising. of Syria were Muslim Sunnis, and the rest minorities, Kurds, Shiites, Circassians, Druze, Christians, and the biggest minority that run the country call themselves Alawites. Assad, the president of Syria, he's an Alawite. Alawites were Muslims. They split it from the Shia in the Middle Age period and invented something different. They call themselves Alawites on the name of Ali bin Abi Talab, the son-in-law of Muhammad, which they recognize as a god. And they, a mixture. Those guys uh, celebrate the Christmas, the Eastern, a uh, few of the Muslims holidays, fast the Ramadan, drink wine, and recognize Jesus, the Messiah. But these are the guys that brought stability to a country like Syria. And that's something that started in November 1970 by a coup that Assad uh, managed to uh, bring himself to a position of being the president. He was a defense minister before that. Hafez al-Assad. He managed to bring Syria to be stable for the first time in the Syrian history, first of all by extincting politics. Politician objected Assad, hanged or prisoned. Pure dictatorship. In 73, he managed to get a fatwa, Islamic religious law, that recognized the Alawites as Muslims. By doing that, turned himself to a Muslim leader, which could unify these ethnic groups there under one purpose, having a common enemy, which is us. Months after 6th of October 1973, where the Yom Kippur War to here below us, that's the value of years. One of them says, Muhammad says, if you protest against your ruler as if you protested against me. If you protested against me as if you protested against Allah. Which means if I protest against my ruler, I should protest against my God. No one that have the religion in central of living will do so. So now the question is, what makes someone to be a Muslim? So Muslims' bodyhood, that's the...
claim that he's a Muslim, consider as well. Which means as long as I don't sit in the main square of Damascus with my seven wives instead of four drinking beer which are not allowed, weeping people passing in the street and yelling unrecognizing Allah and his laws, I consider as a Muslim. But then as a ruler, I'm probably a bad Muslim. Because I don't run my country by the Sharia laws of Islam. And then the obligation of the individual is to bring me to be replaced by a better Muslim, but only if he's confident 100% that revolution will succeed. What's the change that I will know that I can win without uh, uh, being a prophet? And according to Islam, Muhammad was the last one. But that's something that preserved those dictatorships we saw in the Middle East and kept them stable for a long time as the Syrians. Assad damaged his credibility for losing Israel in 1973. Therefore, he tried to present that war as a victory, but didn't manage to convince everyone. And gradually, Muslims' bodyhood, which was the main opposition, started to get strong. In June 1980, he even tried to assassinate the guy. He was kind of pissed, so he sent his young brother, Rafa, to a city called Hama by Damascus, using chemical weapons, killed him on the 20,000 soldiers. No one tried to mess with that guy. Syria got very stable. We managed to get a very quiet border, which was good enough. decided to use his Shiites friends, Iran. Iran, as a very sophisticated country, didn't want to get their troops inside in the first stage. So they sent their proxies from Lebanon to Hezbollah, Hezbollah, body of God, religious Shiite organization, and turn here a civil war into a religious Sunni Shia war. And a Sunni Shia war couldn't stand the borders of Syria. And it brought in the invention of the Sunni countries. Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Iran, Emirates, and Jordan. Into that mess, we started to have all kinds of different organizations getting involved, for example, all kind of Salafian, Salafian ancestors that were in Islam back in the 7th century, or other groups as Jihad Islam, 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 Jihad Islam,
I just said it turned to a big mess. Finding Shiite, Shiite finding Sunnis, and we have also Sunnis that fight other Sunnis. We are not Sunnis, we are not Shiites. And finally, it's an advantage to be a Jew in the Middle East. Let's use it as well. Let's stay out of That was the Israeli policy since the beginning. Together we have a humanitarian aid. Which means that it's not only that those injured get into Israel almost without asking questions, they can get treatment, medical treatment. Then have to run over. There's few sections, a few places uh, along the border that we can get those people uh, from. Uh, once we used to work with field hospitals, one of them was very close now to us. Uh, today we prefer to bring them to the civilian hospital mostly because of the numbers. We about many more today than we had then five years ago. And then on the way back, Israel do follow up, which means that we won't accept them as refugees. But on the way back, you know, we send uh, medicines, painkillers, uh, food supply, uh, uh, diapers, baby food, prosthetics, uh, basic needs. And more than that. Um, the idea is gradually to give humanitarian aid, mostly to the refugee camps on the border, on the Syrian side.
Because now being a caliph, standing in the head of the caliphate, that's not only about Iraq and Syria, that's about getting the caliphate of the Salafia of the 7th century from the north of Africa to east of India. So they started talking about Qasr al-Hudud, breaking borders. For Qasr al-Hudud, it's not only something that's relevant to ISIS, but to many other groups, and I would say even the individuals that live in those countries in the Middle East today. Which means that this Arab Spring managed to cut the heads of the pyramids. And very powerful leaders that once ran their countries by death, which means that in the 20th century, I want to understand Syria. First of all, I need to understand Hafez al who's Syria that was a one man show. If I wanted to understand Iraq, I need to understand who Saddam Hussein, the Mashmur, the Kret, the Path of the Kret. That was the elite of the Sunnis that control a country that almost 65% of are Shiites. If I wanted to understand Libya, I need to know about Omar Gaddafi that managed to keep the country stable for 42 years by the Rad, but If I wanted to understand Iran, I need to understand Ruhala Khomeini or Ali Khamenei that managed to run their country by the revolutionary guards. If I wanted to understand Saudi Arabia, that was King Salman or the son of the house, or Yemen with Ali Abdullah Saleh, or Jordan with Hussein, or Mubarak. Means those were powerful leaders that managed to run their countries by their armies. Which means that today it's about the individual. And the individual in age of social media is pretty strong and pretty effective if you want to gather people around and protest together. And the individual don't care about the state. He cares about his hamula, the big family, his tribe, his ethnic group, his religion. And if the state is good for my tribe, I'm going to be good for the state. But if the state is bad for my tribe, I will fight that state. The state cannot be good for all the different tribes, and therefore we're always going to have tribes that will fight the states with different groups that fight. And that's the new chaotic Middle East that we're facing now in the 20th century. Which means we cannot come with the mindset of the 20th century and bring solutions. But uh, the situation is very different. Doing a de-escalation zone as we have here over the fence, it's saying that we'll have your Druze living together with Shiites, with global jihad, with moderate Sunnah, with global jihad again, and 700,000 Druze there by Suede, all gonna live together in a harmony, supervised by guys here over those mountains. We have two companies uh, of so-called Russian forces coming from the northern Caucasus, from Indonesia. Chechnya. Those are looking at that hill right there. That hill over there, exactly. That's where the Russians are. Yeah. Which means 13 kilometers from the border. And uh, they're supposed to uh, make sure that the groups here don't fight. So, I'm going to walk. Seven and a half miles that way are the front lines of the Russians. Yeah. Overlooking this village that we're looking at in the border. Which means that we do it here. Pretty much the same mistake that Isaac Miko done there, 120 years ago. For Israel, the situation getting worse. We're starting to have, and part of it because of the policy of the West, as Trump said, we won't build states, we'll kill terrorists. So if now the West almost stops supporting the rebels, which is the moderate. 
outside the medical shield. And that's Iran. Of Syria. That's the situation today. It might change now as the changing of the policy we all hope for. And into the vacuum that the policy of Obama left of staying out, Russia got inside. Which means that today this is bad, but this is the situation for Israel. We have US that getting a little bit less significant here. We have Russia that getting more. And uh, we have Iran. With Russia, we do have a relationship, definitely not as close as with US. With Iran, of course, we don't have. And uh, this is something that we have to deal with, which means that this probably won't be the wise border we have in Israel, as we had for 40 years. This is something that the Israeli uh, forces today prepare for. So first of all, it's by building a fence, a fence that will deal better with guerrilla warfare. We the motion sensors, video cameras, intelligent drones, bomber drones, unmanned vehicles, control. That's the we have right special there. forces that occupy positions. We have uh, tanks. We have uh, cruise missiles. Uh, we have women soldiers singing in front of screens and monitoring defense 24/7. We have defensive systems. We have many other units that work here on the surface or off the surface. I consider it more classified. And the idea is being prepared for all kind of situations. And mostly that as quiet as it feels now once we come here, standing half a mile from the border, uh, things can change here, can escalate in the middle of hours. Well, we just heard some shooting. Unfortunately, they're not shooting. Our forward position shields for Israeli troops to fire from, should they be fired on from down below in Syria. This road is the forward-most paved road in Israel. And below the front line, Israeli position looking down into the Syrian valley, over the Al-Qaeda position. This is where the tanks apparently, according to the captain, were maneuvering within the last day. Their base just over that hill, back into Israel. I'm at the front border. Golan Heights, about a mile from the Syrian border, in front of the British base and turning to destroy the 744. The Syrians come over that border that I'm looking at. My left is a minefield with barbed wire. On top of that hillside behind me is a special that is the first line of defense. South. This is the brand new Israeli fence on the Syrian border. I'm standing behind a tank embankment. I'm looking at this is all Syria that I'm looking at. About uh, 15 minutes ago, we saw a motorcycle zooming 
no man's land. Those are Al-Qaeda fighters. And across about three, four hundred meters is the Syrian army. enjoyed our tour of Syria, at least from the Israeli side, please go to our website www.americantruthproject.org where you can sign up to be on our mailing list so you never miss an important episode or you can write to me, Barry, at americantruthproject.org and I promise to get back to you. I'm Barry Newsman. Thanks for listening to the American Truth Project, a 501c3 nonprofit. Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on our social media channels to stay plugged in to the truth. Go to americantruthproject.org and subscribe to our newsletter to stay informed on the latest news.